this is a time of the service that we gather together corporately in order to hear from the Word of God. You are not just listening to me deliver a sermon. You are hopefully listening to someone who has taken time diligently to study the Word and to be able to present it to you so that you might feast upon it and that you might be spiritually nourished. Uh, We take what we do here very seriously, so I I need from time to time just to remind you of that, just to to make sure that we all understand what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve. Uh, I'm not here to be a stand-up comic. I'm not here to, to lead a pep rally. I'm here just to deliver the Word of God to you, and so hopefully your hearts are ready to be able to receive that. And on that note, I am going to take a little bit of a liberty today. I'm going to ask for a little bit more of your time as I deliver the sermon. I find it's better to to let people know you're going to go a little bit longer than normal ahead of time, but I promise it's only slightly longer, okay? So bear with me. Uh, Let's go to the Father in prayer. Holy Spirit, these are your words. They come from the words that you inspired these authors to write millennia ago. And so, Lord, we just pray that uh, we would be receptive to it, that you would open our hearts to it, that, Lord, you would impress it upon our hearts in order to change us, to transform us, that we would love Jesus more passionately, and that we would become more like him. So come, Holy Spirit, work through your word among us now. We pray this according to the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Let me give you a brief recap upon what we learned last week. The book of Genesis was produced by Moses at about the same time as the Pentateuch. Its purpose was twofold. First, it was to provide the Hebrew community with their historical background as to why they were God's chosen people. And second, and most important, was how Yahweh interacted with his people. The characters in Genesis change over time, but there is always one chief actor at work in the entire story, and that is Yahweh, the Lord God. The book is primarily about Him. While the individuals in Genesis might provide interesting character studies, we should always be asking ourselves, what does this passage teach us about God and His purposes? This constant emphasis on God's interaction is demonstrated in what's referred to as the Toledot sequence. Now, last week I gave you this enlarged outline here that was on the back of the questions for our child dedication service. I didn't get a chance to address that then, but now's a good time to do so. The structure of Genesis is fairly obvious. The work is comprised of a majestic prologue followed by ten sections, or sometimes traditionally referred to as books. And these books are easily identifiable by the Hebrew word toledoth, which is translated the account of, or these are the generations of. When this phrase is used, a new section of Genesis is given to the reader. So we have the prologue of Genesis 1 explaining how everything originated, and then 10 books that reveal what God is doing next in the story. Now, I cannot emphasize this enough. Genesis is about God and what he is doing as he specifies his particular people that he has set apart from himself. If we can keep that as our focus, then a whole lot of confusion concerning periphery issues will fall away. And nowhere is that confusion demonstrated more than in the first three chapters in Genesis. 
Now, there is a branch of liberal Christianity that does not believe in inerrancy, and to them, Genesis is just superstition that was composed after the exile in order to give the Jews an identity. And I would say that such people are propagating falsehood that would cause me to doubt their salvation. However, among Christians who claim to be evangelical, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the most controversial in the last 200 years or so. So let me go ahead and step out on the thin ice here. I have a particular way of interpreting these opening chapters in Genesis that is contrary to how some other pastors and scholars interpret this passage. And I want to state up front, I believe wholeheartedly that conservative evangelical Christians who would disagree with me are saved. I hope that they would view me that I am saved also. We both have placed our faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we both have a way that allows us to interpret these passages of Scripture while still upholding the doctrine of inerrancy. We are still brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of these alternate views I can live with. Others, I might have some grave concerns about the consequences of holding such views. But hear me well. When dialoguing about the age of the earth or when original sin started and the historical Adam and Eve, if we disagree, I don't think you're the enemy. I don't think you're the devil. I just think you're wrong. (laughs) And sadly, in our day and age, our tendency is to cancel out someone when we disagree. And I hope that if you think I am wrong, that you would extend the same grace to me. But regardless of our disagreements, we could continue the conversation and test one another's theories and sharpen one another to pursue Christ as he's found in his word. The body of Christ should be a model to the rest of the world when we debate. That our dialogue is is even-tempered and patient and loving and encouraging and gracious for one another's benefit and not just to win an argument. Now, I want to give a brief overview of some of these controversial issues. I'm doing this because I want you to be aware that I've considered and evaluated the way these passages can be interpreted while still maintaining the doctrine of inerrancy. I would remind you of what we said last week. No one except the Lord Almighty was present when the universe was created. There were no other eyewitnesses to these events and whatever processes he might have used. So if we believe that the Holy Spirit has authored this book, then we must accept God's word as a true account of what occurred. Whatever theories that are proposed must stay within the boundaries of what God has revealed to us through his word. The questions surrounding this generally fall into three categories. The first of these are, are these chapters meant to be taken literally or can we interpret them symbolically? These would be issues like, is day in Genesis 1 a literal 24-hour day, or should we view it symbolically as an indeterminate uh, period of time? Was there an actual talking snake in Genesis 3, or was this a way to represent the embodiment of evil coming into the world? Uh, If it may be a combination of both literal and symbolic, how much allowance can we give a symbolic interpretation? A second category, and similar, is the issue of whether Genesis 1 through 3 is historical or is it allegorical or metaphorical. Genesis 1 is particularly highly stylized Hebrew writing. 
And is this a passage like a poem of a historical account of what God actually did that could be passed down from generations? Or was this a metaphorical poetry that teaches that Yahweh is the God of order in contrast to the paganism of the time that sowed disorder into the world? Were Adam and Eve real historical people in which every human being descended, or are they an allegorical sort of everyman figure that demonstrates the sin that's within all of us? Was Eve actually created from Adam's rib, or was this just a poetical way of expressing human equality? And then there's the third category, and perhaps this is the most controversial. Should Genesis be interpreted theologically alone or scientifically alone? Is there implied science in these verses, or is God only seeking to provide theological principles? And you might be surprised that the debate on this issue can go both ways. There are theistic evolutionists that believe when Adam was created from the dust, this was a way of communicating to a primitive society that Adam evolved from microorganisms. And I've read books by creation scientists so intent on proving scientifically that God created the world that they've completely missed or at best omitted the overarching theological truth that these chapters in Genesis are obviously meant to convey. So we will need to address some of these matters as we work our way through the text. So let me be upfront and transparent about my own understanding of Genesis 1 through 3. I am a literal historical young earth creationist. I have arrived at my position through my study of the Bible. Now, I willingly confess, I do not claim any expertise in any other scientific discipline other than theology and history. I have people that want to argue with me frequently using scientific data to to prove their point for either a young earth or an old earth or from a chemical or a biological evolutionary process. I, I am not obtuse to such findings, nor am I ignoring the data. I do believe that matters of faith and science can be reconciled, and we should not ignore science. But my job is not to argue from science one way or the other. As your pastor, my job is to ask, what does the text say? I must begin there and then see if the data can be reconciled with what the Scripture teaches. I have been at this way too long to try to prove a position from science, and here's why. The science keeps changing on me. What we know about the universe today is different than what we understood 10 years ago or 20 years prior to that. So I want to admit up front that I am going to stick with what I know doesn't change, and that is the Bible. That's not just rhetoric. It's what I believe studying for decades now. And if you're the type of person who only wants to investigate a matter through scientific data alone, I hope you wouldn't be closed off to trying to understand what the Bible says about the topic. So with all of this in the background, let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Again, as Randy said, it's on page 1 of your pew Bible. Last week, with the first four words, in the beginning God, we saw that God existed before and was outside of his creation. We also noted the phrase heavens and earth is a merism, which is a literary term that means two extremes to encompass the whole. This is Moses' way of opening the prologue with a thematic sentence to tell us God created everything from A to Z. This is typical of Hebrew literature of moving from the greater to the smaller. 
And he's going to get more specific in verse 3. But before that, Moses presents us with a tantalizing brief description of the situation before the creation of the universe. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we already have a controversy. If God created ex nihilo, or out of nothing, then why is there an earth mentioned here? And what is the water in this pre-existent state? And what is the Spirit of God? Well, if you read the text carefully, I don't think Moses was conveying that matter existed before creation. Rather, he seems to be telling us where there will be an earth, there was a formlessness and a void. There was nothing, a difficult concept to imagine. And in ancient literature, the imagery of darkness and the sea represented at worst chaos but almost always some type of disorder or instability. What better sensory experience to use than being trapped in the sea in utter darkness? But by telling us the Spirit of God hovered over it, Moses lets us know God was always in control, keeping the void in check. There has never been a time when God was not sovereign, controlling all things. The word God in this chapter in Hebrew is Elohim. It is God in the plural. But it's interesting that it's always used to refer to a single entity creating. This is not multiple gods creating, but a single God who in chapter 2 verse 4 reveals his name in the singular, Yahweh or I am. Now, Christians are quick to point out that this is a veiled reference to the Trinity from the outset. I'm certainly okay with that. But we should note that while there are clues leading up to the revealed concept of the Trinity, the Jews had no reason to believe that Yahweh Elohim was not a single entity. After all, Deuteronomy 6.4, composed at the same time as Genesis, states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Transliterated, that would be Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. And starting in verse 3, we have God creating in six successive days. Once again, Moses is moving from the greater to the smaller. In the first three days, you have the heavens working its way down to the earth. And then the following three days, God fills the earth with life, making it habitable for his highest creation, humanity. Now, we need to recognize there is a pattern for each day with some variation among them. Now, I've listed this on your outline in your worship guide. You can see it there. On each day, you have the announcement with the words, and God said, telling us who is doing the action in that moment. And God said. And then there's the commandment or the decree, which is let there be. This is sometimes referred to in theology as the fiat. And included in that pronouncement is always some sort of separation or organization by God. On day one, light is separated from darkness. Day two, the heavens are separated from the earth by the sky. Day three, the land is separated from the sea. And vegetation is provided and sorted according to its kind. 
And day four, the sun, moon, and stars are separated to generate time in the seasons. Day five, birds and sea life are created according to their kinds. And day six, domestic animals, reptiles, and insects, and wild animals are created and sorted according to their kind. And of course, man is also created and separated by gender, male and female. There is always this organization by God demonstrating his sovereignty as he creates. Next in the pattern is a report by the narrator, beginning with the words, and so God made, or so God created, depending on your translation. And in the report, we see that God names what he creates. This is important within Hebrew culture because to name someone or something is to have stewardship over it. And this is a point where there is some variation here. God does not name anything else after creating land and sea on day three. We will see in chapter 2 that man gets the privilege of naming the other living things, since the Lord will give him stewardship over the earth. And finally, after each day's creation, we have the evaluation where God declares what he made is good, which is followed by the chronological framework with the words, there was evening and there was morning, the first day or the second day, and so on. So once again... I'm going to be transparent and say, because I believe this chapter to be historical, I think we are dealing with six 24-hour literal days. It doesn't make sense that when you see the Toledot sequence of your outline that Moses intended the first three chapters to be figurative and the rest of it to be historical. While I am aware this is highly stylized Hebrew pattern language, I am certain it is also historical. I am also aware that I have brothers and sisters that believe the day here is a metaphorical age and not a 24-hour period. And if you disagree with me, once again, I don't think you're the enemy. I just think you're wrong. St. Augustine, a champion of the Christian faith from the 4th century, probably outside of the Apostle Paul, had more influence on the Christian faith with his writing did not believe in a six-day creation. He believed it was done in only one day. After all, why would an all-powerful God need five additional days? And I certainly wouldn't doubt Augustine's salvation. So if you tell me that you think day is longer than 24 hours, please know I am not doubting your integrity or your salvation. But let me tell you where I would have a problem. If you tried to tell me that God couldn't create the universe in six days. I would have a problem with that. That he was somehow dependent in some way upon a length of time. Then I would lovingly tell you that you have a problem with your orthodoxy. God is under no limitations other than his own character. And by that, I mean such things like God cannot lie, because that would violate his character. Or he could not commit sin, nor replicate himself. He is utterly unique in that way. But you must believe in an omnipotent God in order to remain orthodox. Now, my belief in a 24-hour day is for literary reasons. In my opinion, it is the best rendering of the text. And because it's my privilege, I will very briefly share three reasons why. Turn to Exodus 18, if you will. Now, if you disagree with me, Perhaps God will make you the teaching pastor of Providence Baptist Church at some point, and you can share why you disagree. 
And as you're getting to Exodus, let me give you number one, reason number one. First, I am well aware of 2 Peter 3, 8, where we are told that a day is like a thousand years unto the Lord. The context of that verse is why the Lord delays his judgment. It's not in relation to creation. It's not proper to apply that verse to Genesis 1. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for day, yom, occurs 2,225 times. Its overwhelming preponderance of usage refers to the daily cycle. And when it does not, it is fairly obvious by context. And one should have good contextual reasons to interpret yom as a metaphorical age, such as using a phrase, in the day of the Lord. And I do not see such a reason to do so in Genesis 1 unless I bring a preconceived assumption to the text. So that's number one. The second is that in the chronological framework of the creation days, we have the repetitive phrase that there was evening and there was morning, followed by the pronouncement of the first day or the second day and so on. It is used to show God concluded his creation work on that particular day. Now, if we believe that Genesis was written at the same time period as the Pentateuch, we can find clues in how these words were used elsewhere in Moses' books. We see a similar phrase that's used in Exodus 18, beginning in verse 13, but just in a reversed order. Genesis, Exodus 18, verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Same phrase, reversed order. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? All the people stand around you from morning till evening. This phrase conveys a 24-hour period. Now, if you will, turn to Exodus chapter 27, a few pages over. You have the same exact phrase from Genesis 1 used in verse 20. And it regards the, or excuse me, uh, verse 21, not 20. Uh, it regards the priestly attendants at the tabernacle here. So Exodus 27, verse 20, and we'll start there. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of the meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. It is clear by using the same phrase from Genesis 1 that this was to be a daily exercise. And my third reason comes from Exodus chapter 20. Turn back towards chapter 20 again. When Moses gives the fourth commandment. Verse 1 of this chapter tells us Moses received this revelation directly from God. This was not oral tradition, but a direct word from God to Moses. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and that all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now I realize that some want to interpret verse 11 as figurative, but context would dictate that this is a literal day as God describes his work from Genesis 1. 
It would have made no sense to them in such a moment that the word yom meant a metaphorical age. These are the primary reasons why I believe in a literal six-day creation. Now, hopefully, I've provided you legitimate reasons for that belief, and you don't think your pastor is a nut job. But rather, you, I hope you're seeing that I'm trying to stay true to the Word of God. Now, we'll get to the age of the earth uh, in later chapters here in Genesis in a, in a couple of weeks. But we need to get back to this pattern of the creation days. In Genesis 1, we should take note when the pattern is somehow disrupted or something pops up that is unusual, like when God stopped naming his creation. So, for example, there is a threefold explanation for the purpose of the stars, sun, and the moon. They provide a source of light upon the earth, they are signs to mark the seasons, and they separate daytime from nighttime. The explanation is presented again in verses 17 and 18 in chiastic form. Did I say that right, Ryan? Ryan, did I say it right? Okay, he's laughing, so I must be. I, I would say chiastic, but Ryan is always quick to point out my pronunciation of this. You engineers. No doubt it is emphasized here that these extraterrestrial objects are Yahweh's creation. I've got more coming, Ryan. Just you wait. Brother. No doubt here, God is trying to point out that these objects in the sky are his creation. They are neither gods nor zodiacs as the pagan world saw them. These objects have this purpose and nothing else. There's also a lengthy explanation of the creation of man and woman in comparison with the rest of creation. And in verse 28, they are given a divine mandate to rule the world. No other creatures are given this privilege. Now, we're not going to have time this morning to exposit a fuller meaning of these verses. Lord willing, we'll meditate upon them a little more next week to do full justice to them. Also here, there is no evaluation on day two. It's not that what God created on that day was bad. It's just not ready for life, which comes the next day. That is when God sees it as good which should speak volumes about how God views life. There is a double evaluation on the sixth day. After the animal kingdom is created, he calls that good. But on the same day, man and woman are created to rule over the earth. And then in verse 31, he looks back at what he has created and the assignments that he gave to what he made. And his evaluation is not, this is good, but this is very good. Now, we need to be honest in our assessment of this text. There is much that we're not told in this chapter. We're not told the size of the universe. We're not told the physical laws regarding nature. We're, we're not given any explanation about chemistry or DNA. There, there's no mention of certain things like microorganisms. I have no doubt that God created those. We're not told what biological processes might have been used in reproduction that might have produced variety within different species subsequent to their creation. So we need to confess Genesis 1 is not intended to be a scientific textbook. However, it is intended to inform the reader about God and our origins. Like we emphasize, this is a book about God. So what do we glean about God from these verses? 
Now, we've already noted in our previous sermon that God existed before his creation. Therefore, he's not dependent upon it in any way. But let me give you five additional facts that Genesis 1 teaches regarding God, especially in light of the culture in which Moses lived. And then I want to give you five relevant applications. So this is five additional facts about God and five relevant applications. Some of these are obvious, but they bear pondering and meditating on. Number one, God is the creator. God is the creator. There is no other deity involved in this process. God created everything alone. He needed no other outside help, such as lesser gods or angels, to assist him. He alone is specified as the creator. Second, God is the source of all things. He is the source of all things. Galaxies, God thought of that. Bears, God thought of that. Pterodactyls, God thought of that. Water, God thought of that. Children growing from the womb to adulthood, he thought of that. There is nothing that exists that did not begin in the mind of God. That brings us to the third point. As the creator and the source, God is sovereign. He is sovereign. He rules over all. And he gets to assign and designate whatever purposes to this creation that he wants. Because I believe Genesis 1 to be historical, I do not think there is room for what is termed macroevolution, that everything had a single material source and evolved from it. You see in the chapter very clearly that God creates variety of species by decree. He doesn't start with evolutionary process and guide it into multiple things. Rather, the universe begins with biodiversity. Fourth, God is the life giver and the sustainer. We have done some amazing things with artificial intelligence, but we still have not figured out how to grant something life. We can take it, but we cannot give it. Only the Lord God can do that. And it's not just that God created living things, but he also created a perfect environment for it to thrive. Contrary to popular opinion, God cares about all of life very much. From the ecological to the social environment, from the unborn to the elderly, God is the one that originally wanted all of life to thrive, so we better take note when it comes to conservation and life issues. And last, the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity. No other life form is created in the image of God. No other life form is granted the privilege to rule the earth. No other life form was created to be in this intimate, one-on-one, first-name basis relationship with God. God has a special purpose for mankind. While God is the chief actor in Genesis, it is obvious throughout the book that God is doing something special for men and women within his purposes. So very quickly, five applications related to the overall message of Genesis 1. First, there is no God but the one true God, and all of his creation is subservient to him. There is no God but the one true God, and all of his creation is subservient to him. He owns it all, and therefore all of creation is accountable to him. While you are special in the creation, you are not God. You're not God. For some of you, that brings a disappointment. But for others of us, it is a relief. Second, as the ultimate example of a creator, 
I think God is pleased when we seek to emulate him and we work and create. Whether that's making art or music or dance or literature or medicine or software or buildings or other objects of craftsmanship, as long as we are doing so for the glory of God. That must be the key to it. You bless God when you plant a garden and you do your landscaping. You bless God when you hang up pictures on your refrigerators that your kids drew. You bless God when you bake cookies for your family. You can bless your pastor by doing the same. (laughs) You bless God when you go to work. But God does not want any of those blessed, created things to become an idol. See application one. A third application is you can have relief that there is a sovereign God that is controlling all things outside of his creation. Yes, there are natural laws and biological processes at work in the universe, but God is outside of those, and he is using them all for his glory and his purposes. I would feel hopeless if God was not at work on a higher plane as our bodies and our world deteriorates and decays. But we have hope that our creator God has a bigger and greater plan. He is orchestrating things for a better age. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is based upon this fact. We are not a people who lose hope in death because we have the resurrection of the dead, which is certainly not a natural process. Fourth, Yahweh is a God of order. He provides clear boundaries by which we are to live. Now, we're going to comment more on this in the weeks ahead, especially when we get into chapters 2 and 3. But as our creator, God knows best how we should live. We should listen to his instructions. Unlike the gods of the pagan world who were always capricious and never let you know when they were displeased with you, our God gives us clear, delineated boundaries to benefit us and to protect us from one another and to also protect us from him. And finally, we should note there is a connection in Genesis 1 to Jesus our Savior. There's a connection between the two. Now, if you will, turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 1, the passage that we read earlier in the service. This is found on page 886 of your pew Bible, and you're welcome to look at it also in your worship guide. Now, I'm going to introduce this today, but we're going to need to make continuous reference to it in our study of Genesis. There are many parallels here between John 1 and Genesis 1. Because we believe God the Holy Spirit is the author of all Scripture, we should always be taking the full revelation of the Bible into account. And the Gospel of John opens with staggering words about Jesus. Verse 1. In the beginning. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 1.1. John wants us to go back to that historical event. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John is declaring Jesus to be God, the second person of the Trinity, distinguished from the Father, but God nonetheless. 
Jesus was present in creation, and he is the one who created, and it was all for his benefit. And just as the Godhead brought physical light and life into the universe, Jesus brings spiritual light and life to humanity. Verse 4, in him, the one that we're talking about, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Next, we learn about the witness of John the Baptist here. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And now we return to Jesus again. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Friend, I cannot express to you the exclusivity of placing your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation. Because he's God. He is God himself, the one who, through whom all things were created. And we are accountable to him. He's the only one that can take away your sin. And there is a clear warning here in verses 10 and 11 not to neglect this light. Nothing else will save you before a holy God. Not church attendance, not good works, not participating in sacraments and ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Not even, as verse 13 says, if you're a blood descendant of Abraham. Last night, I'm, I'm, it's just an insertion that happened to me. I, 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 was, I have trouble sleeping on Saturday nights. I've mentioned this before. Uh, this is when the accuser likes to get in my head and, and remind me of all of my weaknesses. And so as I'm, I woke up, maybe about 4.30 or so in the morning, and I'm having these thoughts rustle through my head. And as I'm doing so, uh, I'm, I'm being told, Blair, those thoughts you had yesterday, you're not qualified to get up in that pulpit and, and deliver these, these words. Uh, the, the sins that, that you've committed in your life, you're not qualified to do this. You know, you, you just need to back down. You need to, to, to keep your mouth shut. You just need, I mean, this is the way the accuser works. Just working with, on, on my position here in the church and, and who I am as a person, bringing up all the, the things of my past that I have done, replaying them over and over in my head. And the thought occurred to me, my salvation is not based on my good works, nor is it based on me maintaining good works, even post-salvation. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but I took comfort in something. Usually I'll, I'll say, I, you know, my faith is in the cross of Christ alone. That's true. I don't want to knock that. But my faith is in the righteousness of Christ alone. He makes up for my deficiencies. My faith is in what he has done on my behalf. Not on what I've done in the past, not what I'm doing present not what I'm doing in the future. My faith is on Jesus Christ alone. And that is the way that he has set up his salvation. It's perfect. 
You can't rely on anything else. You must do what verse 12 states here. You must receive and believe that Jesus is your only means of salvation. And you can trust a Savior that can create the universe with a word can also save your soul. Let's pray. Lord, every single person in this room, every single person that is listening to this sermon, whether it's online or through a live stream or maybe a recorded message later, we all should willingly and humbly submit and say, yes, the universe is vast. It is magnificent. And we get joy in being able to discover the things that you have created and laid out before us, whether it's on the microcosmic level or macrocosmic. And all of it, Lord, when we look at it, just points to a great creator and a great designer who has done something magnificent. And so, Lord, while we all willing to confess that, that none of us are sufficient to understand it all, we are so glad that we have a creator God who communicates to us that he has it all in his hands. He's got it covered. He's got us right now exactly where he wants us. And our faith and our confidence can be in you. Thank you for sharing this with us. Thank you for revealing it through the word, your perfect plan, Lord, so that we can have trust in you. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for the perfect plan of salvation that is not up to us, but that it has been secured for us by your son, Jesus Christ, the one for whom and by whom and through whom everything was created. So we pray this prayer that you would continue to allow us to have our faith ultimately in you and in your purposes. We pray so in the finished work of this Savior alone. Amen.